And for those who will remain in the service with us here, and for those who would be listening outside these walls, you're listening to the services of the Broomfield Baptist Church, and this is the pastor bringing the Sunday morning message that I just simply entitled, uh, what did I title it? I had about three or four of them. Oh yes, that one. Uh, Living of the Gospel, or uh, Sustaining the Ministry. Uh, The Lord knows how to help us grow, doesn't he? And it seems that, I don't know, circumstances kind of reveal how he's working and moving sometimes. I don't think it's an accident that on this Sunday, he had slotted in my study and prayer time what we're going to be studying today. Uh, Because there's an element to what we do that very much has to be walking by faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. And uh, this is a good reminder. Now, there are, there are some contextual things that we need to keep in mind. For instance, if we were to come to Matthew chapter 10 and verses 9 and following them, uh, 9 and following down to verse 15 that we're going to study, we would, we would do a disservice, I think, to apply this absolutely literally and say, you must follow this literally every Every minutia of what Jesus said, if you're going to do mission work, you have to do it just like this every time you go. You can't do that. It would be ludicrous to do that, to say that what the apostles were given in that day would apply to us. It's, it, it's the same thing that we mentioned when we studied about the gifts that he gave them, to be able to heal and cast out demons. And There are, there are things that we can do as followers of Christ that he gives us, but some of those gifts... Uh, have served their purpose, and, and so I think you understand what I mean by that. There is a charisma, there is a, uh, a charismatic nature to the gifts that God gives us. We'll see some of that charismatic nature of the gifting of God here in the disciples, the apostles that go forth in their work. But for us to say that, you know, the Lord Jesus came and laid his hands on me, I, I can't say that. I've never seen him face to face yet. I've known him. I've known him personally. And I've heard what's known as his still small voice, the Holy Spirit leading and guiding and directing my life. But I've never heard an audible voice from heaven. I wonder what it would have been like to be on top of the Mount Mount of Transfiguration or somewhere, you know, at Jesus' baptism where heavens thundered with a noise that said, this is my beloved son. I don't know what that sounded like. I wasn't there. I can read about it in the Bible like you can. And uh, maybe some of you that might be listening would say, well, you're not a very spiritual person. I'm not going to listen to you anymore. Okay, well, you can turn it off if you want. But I'm telling you, this is the scripture. And what Jesus does here is for a specific group of people for a specific time in his earthly ministry. And that earthly ministry was limited to that three-year period. And we studied before that they were sent to a specific group. Who is that? To the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And these Disciples are going with a message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is their mission. And I'm covering a little bit of ground leading up to where we're going. I want you to join me in your Bible, if you would, in Matthew chapter number 10. And let's read beginning at verse number 9. And let's take note of how Jesus assured these men that their ministry for him The thing that he had called them to do would be sustained and supported. How would that happen? How would it fall out? How would they be able to continue on doing what Jesus called them to do in a sense? Verse number 9, Matthew 10. The Bible says, 
Provide neither gold nor silver, nor brass in your purses, nor scrip for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. And into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till ye go thence. And when ye come into an house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return unto you. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Lord, I do humbly come before you and ask that you would give us great understanding of your word this morning, that we would also have an ear to hear what the Spirit would say to us. We understand these things were written for our learning. These things were written for our admonition. And Lord, I pray that the one who is here today who needs to make the proper application of the underlying principles that we see in this passage of you sending forth your apostles. I pray that the one that needs their faith strengthened, the one that needs to uh, grow in their understanding of how you operate today uh, in and among a lost and dying world, in and through your people and supporting of the ministry. Lord, I pray that we would take the things that we need to apply to our work that we do for you. And Lord, that when we come to each of our end uh, of our journey, each of us to the end of our own journey, that we would be able to know and look back and see that we were worthy of our of our meat. We were worthy, Lord, you provided for us being the Lord of the harvest. I pray you'll keep uh, my thoughts uh, straight this morning as I try to expound and exposit your word. I pray that I would not say anything that would detract from what you would want to do. I do ask you, Lord, for the filling, the moving, the power of the Holy Spirit to be here upon your word today and that you would accomplish what you want today. And I'll thank you for doing that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. As I studied through this section, I just came away with this thought of the Lord's assurance that these men were going out to do a work for him. And I'm going to build on what you've already studied with me up to this point. So if you haven't read the first part of the chapter, you need to go back and get that down. These were 12 men that Jesus called unto himself. They were previously saved. They had believed on him as Messiah. He calls them to himself, and he commissions them. And then Matthew gives us the list of the 12. And each one of these men, uh, we can look at, at what is recorded about their life or what is not recorded about their life. And then Jesus gives them a specific mission to do. He sends them uh, to an audience, and that audience is the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He sends them with a message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same message that John the Baptist uh, began preaching, and Jesus took up the mantle for now he passes that on to them. And really, it's the hope of the gospel for Israel. And we can center our thoughts around the message of the good news going forth, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you'll change your mind, then you can be delivered, you can be saved. And this is a message to Israel at this time. And, uh, you know, Paul in the, in the letter to Ephesians that we read, he mentioned the word dispensations. Don't let that word throw you off. A dispensation is simply an administration. 
And that would be a good synonym for the word. It's an administration. And so uh, don't don't get thrown off by that. What we mean is that there are there's a different administration in which God operates in different time frames. It doesn't mean that anybody's saved any differently in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. And we all come by faith through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ, through the blood of our Savior. It's all by grace through faith. But yet there's different operations. There's different administrations. For instance, uh, the, the administration of God under Adam looked different than the administration of God to people under Abraham and, and under Moses and, and under Israel's kingdom and its reign. And even under the exile period where they were in Babylonian captivity. Then when our Savior walked the earth, that was the beginning of a new administration under a new covenant that was cut in his blood. And so as we think about the ways that God works and moves, let's understand we are still in the throes of Old Testament time period when Jesus walks this earth. And in the New Testament dispensation, in the New Testament administration of the gospel going forth to the Gentiles in particular and to the rest of the world, this administration will look differently. We see that unfolding in the early days in the life of the church, and it's still being unfolded today through what we do in preaching and teaching the Word of God. That is still the administration until the times of the Gentiles be full, and uh, in this passage it says, till the Son of Man come. Uh, they're not going to exhaust Israel. They're not going to go through all that uh, that's the, that they have before them until the Son of Man uh, come in His kingdom. And, and that day is coming, and Jesus Christ is coming again. So with that, I, I just want you to see kind of a perspective in which we approach this passage and study. The Lord assures them, when you go, you're going to be taken care of. You don't need to worry about these things Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves. And then he says this clarification statement, for the workman is worthy of his meat. So he says, go, go to these people, preach this message, authenticate it by this demonstration of power. You've received it freely, freely give this out. Don't charge anything for it. Now, what are you going to take with you when you go? Don't worry about going out and buying new stuff and getting a bunch of things for this journey. You just need to go. There's an urgency. I think if you want to connect a word beside that, connect the word urgency. This is an urgent message that Jesus wants to get to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. How will their ministry be supported? Do I need to go pack my bags? Do I need to you know, get a lot of stuff together? Should I start making travel arrangements? I don't know about you, but when I travel, I like to know where I'm going ahead of time. It used to be a day here in our country where maybe you could just jump in the car or hitch up the horse and just go and, and know that you'd have a place to stay when you got where you were going. Now, you know, we call ahead, we make reservations in the hotels, we pack our bags, we make, and then when we get down the road, it's not very long after that, we realize, oh, well, that's going to stay at home because I guess I didn't need it for this trip. Unless it's something that you can't live without, then you have to turn around and go back and get it. Inevitably, we always forget something, right? Well, Jesus here has a sense of urgency, and he says to them, go. And when you go, don't worry about all these other things that you might pack to take along with you on a journey like this. And if you look at the culture of the day, if you study the background, these are things they're going to need for their trip. And it's it's broken down, I think, in an interesting way by Matthew here. He gives uh, very, very succinct details. Provide 
That word can mean uh, get for yourself. Go out and procure this. It says don't, don't worry about getting these items. These are metals. Gold, silver, brass. Okay, I've, I think you understand the, the, the flow behind this. All of this deals with money, right? And he says, for your purses, and maybe we'd say they're mercies if we're men. You know, we're, 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 I'm just kidding. In this day, uh, the term purse in this context would be like a would be like a girdle, like a belt, and uh, maybe a money belt might come to to your mind. Uh, and they would take their their gold, they would take their little pieces of gold, they would take their silver pieces, their brass pieces, uh, could be copper pieces, uh, and they would take these monies and they would have them for the journey because well, you might need them if you're coming to an end. Remember the uh, story of the Good Samaritan? When he found that man that was beaten and left for dead, what did he do? He went to the inn. If he didn't have his girdle with him, if he wasn't carrying his merce around, then uh, he wouldn't have been able to pay for the lodging at the inn that was required to house that man and nurse him back to full health. And so, you know, he said, whatever I can't pay right now, just put it in my account, I'll make it good. That's a good illustration. Provide neither gold. Don't worry about the money. You're going to need to eat. You're going to need to have clothes to wear. You're going to need to have the basic necessities of life as you go. Don't worry about the money. Can I just reiterate that point? Because I think so many times the devil tries to use that. Even in my life, I have to be on guard about this because uh, we can get concerned about how we're going to make ends meet for tomorrow and, and how we're going to do this. And if I'm not careful as I plan and pray about ministry, the devil can sneak in and he can divert what I'm supposed to be doing. And if he can get me off task, I have one task, to preach the gospel, to preach and pray and witness. And if I get off task from that because I'm worried about money and I'm worried about monetary things, so I think this is good precedent for those that will serve God. We're not going out to sell the gospel. We're not making merchandise of it. And this is something that has been grievous to me before as a pastor in ministry. Uh, you know, you call, you call, and I, Lord, help me be careful with this because I don't want to say anything unkind or, or misrepresent anyone. There are certain people who have the title of, of uh, ministerial personnel. Can I just say it that way? That they have a certain price on them. Does, does that make sense? For instance, if they're going to come and host a week of meetings, or if they're going to come and do ministry, if they're going to come and do, do something for the day, there's a price tag on that. And if they were hard-pressed and you twisted their arm, they'd probably come without that price tag. Because, but I think you understand my heart on this. It's grievous to me to think about people that, that put that forward and they say, you know, we're going to do this ministry, but, uh, well, is it really ministry? At that point, no, you're getting paid for it. We're paying you for a service that you're providing. And by the way, this is a big thing that the IRS doesn't understand about churches and ministries because they see everything we do as rendering goods and services. And so in their mind, in their business mindset, they can't understand it any other way than a service is rendered and it's being paid for. But this passage helps us see so much about how that's not the intent of ministry. I guess I could use an illustration from my own life and a personal thing that I had to go through early in ministry. When I first started out in a full-time ministerial position, I was in that position for about six months, and I had a certain job duty 
uh, requirement upon me. I had job description, and, and it was ministry. And all of it related to ministry. Well, about six months into that, the salary was removed, and the ministry responsibilities remained the same. I didn't go and ask for a change of my job description. I just kept doing what I had always done before, except now the difference is I'm not getting paid for it. Why would I take that kind of mentality? For passages such as what is before you here. And the church family knows my heart on this. I don't want to dwell on this. I don't want to bring any attention to myself or, or boast or brag in any way. I just want to remind the church family, I've lived this out before you. And I'm prepared to live it out again if I have to. To live by faith and not by sight. We need to be good stewards. We need to be wise with what God blesses us with. But sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not. And if I get caught up on the times that it's not, Jesus says, don't worry about this stuff. Don't worry about the money. You just go and do the mission that I've called you to do. And this is where your faith gets strengthened. So as we think about the first aspect of this, verses 9 through 11, I've summarized this as faith's inquiry. Faith's inquiry. The missionary's faith, alongside his finding of those worthy of the gospel message. There's a faith on part of the missionary to just go and trust that God will uphold and carry him through. If we go back to chapter 9, uh, where's my verse? Chapter 9, it talks about his compassion, the compassion of Jesus Christ, where he looked and he saw them as sheep having no shepherd towards the end of the chapter, he says, when he saw the multitudes in verse 36 of Matthew 9, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he to who? His disciples. The same ones he's going to send out in chapter 10. The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, and here's the phrase I want you to see, the Lord of the harvest. What these men are to do is to trust that the Lord of the harvest will provide for them as they go. They're not looking to turn a buck on selling the gospel or selling their gift of healing or, or getting people to pay for these, these services that they're going to render. No, they're going and they're preaching a message. They're validating it with these signs. And it's all free. They don't ask a single thing for it in return. And that's how I've always approached ministry. I don't get paid to do ministry. If you want a pastoral example of this, for someone that would approach uh, the church and ask for uh, wedding services or funeral services or chaplain type services, some of you know I don't charge for those things. Sometimes people push me and they say, but we want to be a blessing. And my reply to them is be a blessing to the church. Because if the church is taken care of, then my needs are going to be met as a minister of the gospel through the pattern that we see in Matthew 10 here. And I can be busy about doing the work of the ministry. But for me to go and, and have these services on my hip and charge for them, for the dispensation of them, that's ludicrous. And as a preacher of the gospel, shame on me if I ever get to that point. The laborer is worthy of his meat. The workman is worthy of his hire. Literally, that is, he's worthy of his food. The word meat there has the idea of food to it. And uh, Romans would say he's worth his salt. 
somebody who's worth his salt. That's a phrase that maybe we've picked up from the Romans. But as we go, as we labor, and as we work for the Lord, and we give ourselves to what he's called us to do, the Lord of the harvest is the one that provides to meet our needs. I'm being a dead horse now. But notice in verses 9 and 10, we can see readily God is faithful. I appreciate that song that my wife sung. He is faithful and true. God's faithfulness will be to provide for his, quote, preachers. And I'm using that term here because these are, that's what they're doing. They're going, they're preaching the gospel. They're preaching repentance and the kingdom of heaven being at hand. And so God is going to be faithful to provide for their needs. One writer said this, Even though John the Baptist's and Jesus' ministries may have prepared the countryside to receive Jesus' disciples, one is still struck by the relative lack of funds and equipment that the disciples are to take. I read that and I thought, that is striking. He tells them, just go out, fellas. Well, what about this? What about that? What about this? We don't have the equipment. We don't have the funds. We, don't, we need the money to be able to do He says, go. There's an urgency. And so that is striking. He went on to say, this reminds believers today that their ultimate re- ministry resource What is your ultimate ministry resource? It's the Lord's power, not our own provisions. If we get to the place in ministry where we're operating because we can provide, and we're not operating on the Lord's power, then it's only a matter of time before our provisions end because we're living on ourselves and we're not living on the Lord's power. These men were to be connected to the Lord's power as they went. This was to sustain them. And I think that's a valid statement that we can apply to our own lives. The simplicity of provisions, how simple this was. Isn't that interesting how the devil likes to get us away from the simplicity that's in Christ. And we get all these things running. We get all this this machinery going. And then we can't keep up with it. We wonder why. and, And we're trying to pump oil into this thing and money into this thing and keep this machine going and build this big empire. And we wonder why it breaks down in the end. Well, somebody comes along and throws a monkey wrench in there probably somewhere along the way. Simplicity. One of the greatest helps to me as a pastor has been what my pastor shared with me. He says, Jason, you have one mission. Don't ever get to the place where you think it's your job to put people in the pews. Because the moment you get to that mentality is the moment you're in trouble. He says, your one task is to preach and to pray and to witness. And the Lord Jesus promised he would build his church. And we have to be content with that, whatever that looks like. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. The Lord adds and then we pray, pray for the time where disciples get on fire and go out and start multiplying other disciple makers And we see multiplication in the ministry. That's where multiplication happens. But sometimes there's division before that comes. Sometimes there's subtraction before the addition and the multiplication. We always want the multiplication, but let's not forget, sometimes we have to go through uh, some of the the times that the Lord divides. And and it's all for different reasons. It's not always just for bad things, okay? It could be to help us in ways that we don't quite understand. But the simplicity of the provisions tends to negatively reflect on the aggressive fundraising and the lavish accoutrements that are observed in certain ministries today, the writer went on to say. I think he's touched a nerve there for me. What, what do you think? Is he onto something there? One of the things that I disdain is fundraising, and that's 
that's probably a, a huge weakness I have. I'm not a fundraiser. I'm not a telemarketer. I'm not somebody who can put on these big campaign programs and raise a bunch of money for whatever we're doing. I just simply tell people about a need and then trust God that somebody's going to be moved to provide that in God's time according to God's way. And I'm maybe not, I'm not as forceful, you know. We don't uh, we don't keep records uh, that I know, you know, personally who gives what here at the church. We have we have monies that come in. We have account team that handles that, and uh, we have uh, separation of duties. But I don't know what people give, and I keep it that way on purpose. I don't want to know who gives what because uh, I've been in positions in previous years where. We didn't have the resources, and I had to know because I was the one processing much of that. And it does affect you. Even as much as you say it's not going to, I'm not going to let it affect me, it does affect you. Uh, when you see you know, what comes in, and, and I, I wish that it weren't that way, but I'm human, and, and I have weaknesses just like anybody else. And so with these protections in place, I don't need to know who gives what. I just need to trust God and continue preaching. So what is faith's inquiry? Faith's inquiry, the missionary's faith, and his finding those worthy of the gospel message. God is faithful to provide for his ministers, for those that he's going to send out. Provide neither these things. So the first deals with the money that they would need for their journey in verse number 9. And then verse 10, it talks about the other items that they would find helpful, uh, would find a benefit to their traveling. So the script for their journey... Uh, something to, to take their notes, this leather pouch they would have. The two coats, okay, what do you need two coats for? Well, in this climate, uh, you can sleep out under the stars and not really be bothered by it too much. So you have one coat that you wear, and you have another coat that's kind of like your sleeping bag. Okay? And you just kind of sleep out in the field when you have to. He says, don't worry about the two coats. Now, uh, maybe I should clarify this as well, because sometimes people go to Mark's account, they go to Luke's account, and they see some discrepancy in what Jesus is saying, because in one passage, one of the gospel writers says not to take this item, and the other one says to take this item. And, and so how do, you, how do you correlate the two? I think if you look at the wording and look at it carefully, there's no contradiction to be found there, because basically what Mark is saying is, uh, is he's saying, you, you know, you already have one, don't go out and get another one. That's, that's a good explanation. He says, two coats, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, plural. Why would I need more than one? Well, sometimes, you know, having more than one staff, I don't know about you, but when I go hiking, I like to have two uh, sticks to walk with. I've got two trekking poles, and it kind of helps balance, you know, as I'm going up, especially mountains and things. And It can be hilly country where they're going to be over in Galilee. And so to have one for a club to defend off the wolves and stuff that are out there while you're trying to sleep in your second coat in the field, and then the other staff to walk with, or maybe it's a shepherd's crook. Jesus says, don't worry about, about going and getting extra stuff. If they already have it on hand, they're going to take it with them, but they're not going to waste their time to go out and procure these things to make sure they are ready for the journey. Neither shoes uh, nor yet stage. That doesn't mean they were going barefooted. Okay, they, What they were wearing was fine. They didn't know, need to go out and buy brand new boots for this adventure. Trailman, use what you got, unless it won't work, and then we'll work on supply the need. And then he says, the workman is worthy of his meat. The Lord of the harvest is going to provide. Now, verse 11 says, when, and into whatsoever city or town ye shall enter. Maybe you want to circle this word, note this word, inquire who in it is worthy. 
And so think about this. If we were to apply this absolutely literally, then I need to lose my shoes as a pastor. I need to stop wearing shoes. I can't have any walking sticks. You see what I'm doing? I'm having a little fun with this. But if we take it so literally, we'll miss any application that we need to have for our ministry today. So let's say, you know, I, I feel like God wants me to come to Broomfield, and I'm going to come to Broomfield, and I'm going to start knocking doors, and I'm going to say, hey, are you worthy? Are you worthy? Are you worthy? Now, if I was going to follow this passage literally, <laughs> then I'd be living with some church member, with my whole family, because we would have come and we would have said, oh, you're the worthy one. You're going to put us up and feed us, and you're going to take care of us, and, and, uh, and, and all these things are going to be provided by you because you're the worthy one. Now, in this day and time, this was, this was okay for the culture. What they were doing was they were going and they were completely dependent on the hospitality of those that they were going to. It wasn't like they were doing what many missionaries today would do uh, and go to a foreign country where they don't know anyone. They don't know the culture yet until they learn it unless they grew up there, but a foreign missionary going to somewhere, like, I mean, I'm from the backwoods of Georgia. If you sent me over to Taiwan, I wouldn't know what to do. I'd be lost. And i go knocking on somebody's door. Are you the worthy one? I'm going to fill my head here tonight. Um, we got to be careful. We can't take this literally as in this is how we have to do mission work today. Uh, there's some principles. There's some principles that we need to apply. But it's interesting to me that they were to inquire. The word inquire means to search diligently. If you want to know the place where this is translated, go back to Matthew chapter 2. I think it's in verse number 8 where Herod was uh, talking about the wise man. They had mentioned that this child was born king of the Jews, and he sent them to search diligently for the child. That's kind of the sense here. That these men were to go and search diligently among their brethren, among those that these are small towns. Who else here grew up in a small town? Everybody knows everybody. You can't do anything without you know coming back to mom and dad and the name of the family. It used to be like that a lot in places in America, and so we've gotten disconnected in a lot of ways and lost a little bit of that accountability. But you know, it's not like they were going to total strangers. They were going to people that. Knew them. I mean, Peter and John, they had a fishing business with their dad on the Sea of Galilee. They were well known in the area. And so these men, it's not like they're just going out of the blue and expecting this to happen. There were some things that Jesus was saying, go and just rely on the hospitality of those that would receive you. And I think that was part of the proving, part of the testing that the Lord was doing here in giving this final call, this invitation to Israel. Because his heart was that they would be saved, that they would believe in the Messiah that God has sent. So on the one hand, we see that God is faithful to provide for the needs of those that say, Here am I, Lord, send me. And I can attest to that. There's never been a time that we have gone without completely. Now, we've had some very difficult times. Walking by faith is difficult. Uh, it, it can be at times. But the Lord always provides, and he's never, never left us without food, without clothes, without the things that we need. In fact, if we take an inventory right now, we're blessed. We are abundantly blessed. God has been so good to us, and I'm thankful for that. 
And so in the lean times, in the, in the times of plenty, we serve God and we trust him. Now, on the, on the other side of that, we see in this passage, I believe God's preachers, and I'm going to use that term again here, God's preachers must remain faithful to the place to which they're called. I shouldn't even have to say that, should I? But I see that as a principle in this passage. So when they go to this area, they're to inquire. They are to make an investigation. Before I came to Brookfield, I did some investigating. I looked around. I wanted to see what churches are here, what, what's going on. I didn't want to build on another man's work. And it wasn't until uh, another pastor in the area mentioned, well, why doesn't anybody consider Brookfield that Brookfield even came on the radar? We were looking down all kinds of corridors, praying, my pastor and I, and seeking and searching out where the Lord would have us. And he led us to this place because, well, what we could find is that there's a bunch of churches, but were there any independent Baptist churches in the area? No, you've got to go miles to find one. And so that was one of the factors in us coming here. But that came from a diligent search. It came from a diligent inquiry. How am I going to know who's worthy? I don't know. How are these men going to know who's worthy? There's a, there's a little bit of a charisma about this. That as they go, there's going to be something that we can't quite put our finger on, something we can't quite explain in full detail or lay out in a blueprint or a diagram for you. But they're going to go and they're going to know. They're going to be able to search and then through other people, as they're asking around, they're going to find out, yeah, this, this person is... Is, uh, is, is friendly to your cause. This person has, he, I mean, we've heard about Jesus. We know who he is. You can come stay with us. We'll meet your needs. You, you come here. Whether it was a place of luxury or whether it was a place where they had to sleep in not the best quarters, if you know what I mean, they weren't to be concerned about that. That's not the definition of worthy, okay? Worthy in this sense. The word has the idea of worth Ship. Uh, we used to call mayors and governors and things of that in towns his worthship. Are they worth our presence? Are they worthy of us even being there? Well, if they're hardened and rejecting the Messiah, then they're not going to be worthy. And this is how they're going to discern that. As they go, they're going to find out along the way who is worthy of them bringing this message of hope, this message of the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and those that say, I believe, I want Jesus, I believe the Messiah, those are the ones that will be worthy. Now, as they go, another word that, that stood out to me in this passage was that they were to remain until they left. I don't know if, if reading that it stood out to you or not the way it did me. He says, uh, in whatsoever city or town ye shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till ye go thence. Basically, he's saying, go there and stay there until you leave. How long am I going to stay here until I leave? <laughs> That's the best answer I can give you. How long is that? Uh, the, the, the key, I think, is in the word Stay there, because it's minnow, it's remain, it's abide. They are to go, and when they find that worthy place, this is their base of operations. This is where they're going to do the work of the ministry from. 
They're going to have a place to pillow their head at night. It's going to be the same place the whole time they're there. They're going to go, they're going to find this house that's worthy. Remember, there's 12 of them. So we've got to have 12 homes that will open up their, their heart to these men that are an extension of Jesus Christ. And so who's willing to put them up? Who's worthy of their presence there? As they go out from that place, they go out day by day. They preach, they, they heal, they raise dead, they, they cast out demons, they do all these things. They cleanse the lepers. That's what was listed as the power that was given to them. But they have a single base of operation that they keep coming back to at the close of every day. They come back to that place and they remain there. It says, wherever that worthy place is, stick it out, fellas. Stay there. Remain there until you leave. Well, how are you going to know when to leave? Again, a little bit of a charisma about this. They're just going to know because God's going to reveal it to them each step of the way. I think our churches are hurt today by... Um, the transient nature of our culture. How many churches, how many, how many church families have I known and have you known perhaps that, well, it seems like they get a new pastor every six months to every two years and, and preachers have a hard time staying in areas. When I came here, I came with the intent to stay until I leave. This was the mindset. This was the mentality. However long that takes, if it's through the grave or the rapture, or if the Lord makes his calling abundantly clear that, you know, Brooke Cherith is drying up and it's time to move on, then I'll, I'll heed that. But what I'm saying is I'm here to stay. And these men, when they came, they were there to stay. Now, practically speaking, if we were to have missionaries and evangelists come through, I think it was J. Vernon McGee made this point in his commentary, and I thought, you know, that's, that's a good way to look at it. It would put such a burden on people who are already visiting. And think about it. If, if you're involved in the church family and pastor comes to you one, one week just out of the blue and says, hey, you know, we've got missionary so-and-so. He's coming from the field and he needs a place to stay. Can he stay at your house tomorrow or tonight? And you're scrambling and you're going, oh, you know, I'm looking at the calendar going, I'm not even going to be, I'm going to be out of town. All these things are going on. The easiest way for us to be hospitable in our culture, in our society is to say, Here's a hotel room. Here's a basket of goodies. Make yourself at home. Relax. Uh, hospitality is provided. We're going to take care of you if you need transportation. Whatever you need while you're here, we want to ease your burden. And so that will kind of help you understand a little bit of how we host missionaries and evangelists when they come through and why I, as a pastor, don't come to people unless it's a special circumstance. And I know that that's not going to be too much of a burden for me to come and say, hey, can so-and-so stay at your house? I know you've never met them, and they're probably bringing all this culture from across seas that you don't know about in your home, but can you just host them for the night? Some of you have hosted uh, foreign exchange students and those things, and you know uh, you know about hosting people from other nationalities. Think about that as these men come. They're coming to someone of their own culture, and in this day and time, hospitality was crucial. I cannot stress to you how important hospitality is in the Orient. In the, in the Arab culture, even today, they, they still, I mean, they will give you the shirt off their back because of the hospitality that they have. I encountered that when I went to Israel. Miss Linda, you might have encountered a little bit of it too. The most hospitable people you'll ever find. Until they find out you're of a different faith and then they take that blessing back and shut those doors, right? But, I mean, just friendly, friendly folks and hospitality goes all the way back to Abraham. Can I tell you, the New Testament 
says much about hospitality. And I think one of the areas of our ministries today, not just in our church, but in churches in general, that could be sharpened is this area of hospitality, true, genuine hospitality. And it's sad that, you know, those who have who run businesses of hospitality can do it better than we can because, again, they're rendering a service and people are paying for it. The next time you go to a, to a hotel or a hospital that's not very hospitable to you, you will definitely write a letter to somebody and let somebody know, or you will never be back to that place again because, hey, you're paying for goods and services here. And so many people come to the church with that mentality that they're paying for goods and service and consumer mindset. And so we have a lot of battles, I understand that. But what is faith's inquiry? Are we going to trust God to provide for us as we go and as we serve the Lord and do ministry? Are we going to be faithful to remain where we are and to be faithful to the place that God calls us? These men were to do just that. D.L. Moody said this, Faith is better than funds for the life that now is and for the life that is to come. Let me say that again. Faith is better than funds. F-U-N-D-S. Part of me wants to amend that, you know, say, I get it, Evangelist Moody, the late Evangelist Moody, so many people saved under him. I get it. You know, we need to have faith. We don't need to be worried about the funds for all this. Uh, But would it be nice to have a little bit of extra money for the ministry? I can't amend that anyway. It stands as written. And I can't do a disservice to D.L. Moody's words, even though internally I want to wrestle against that and say, no, can I come to the place where faith is what guides me, that I believe God's going to provide and that faith is better than funds. It's better than your money for the life that now is, not just for the here and now, but also for that which is to come. Yeah, by faith, I'm going to lay up all this treasure in heaven, but what about now? Those that follow Jesus had everything they needed and then some. Peter even asked that question. Lord, what's going to be done to us? We did leave all and follow you. What about here and now? What about the here and now? Can you trust God to provide for you? So from faith's inquiry, I'm going to move quickly through this, but this is powerful. We see, secondly, through verse 15, faith's invitation. So these men were to go and preach the way Jesus had told them to and to be in this place and remain and abide. What were they to do? Offer an invitation to the lost sheep of the house of Israel one more time. God reaching out. So what is faith's invitation? As they go and they find this worthy place, they're going to be preaching this message. That message will either either find a reception or it will find rejection. And whether it is received or whether it is rejected, that's what determines the fate of the hearer. These men are saved. They're going out for Jesus, and they're preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent. They're telling Israel, turn around. You've been going the wrong way. It's time to get right with God and to believe on him who is sent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Some are going to receive that and believe, and they're going to get saved, and they're going to believe that Jesus is the one that's sent by God to be the Messiah. Others are going to reject that message. Yeah. There are plenty of people right here in Broomfield that really could care less and actually would be happy if our church was gone. Same thing in their day. 
There were people who couldn't care less for what they were doing. There were other people who were adamantly opposed to what they were doing. What were they doing? Preaching the truth of the Word of God. It's confrontational. The truth of the cross is. And there is a sense of, of, a, of offense in the cross. God forbid that I should ever offend anyone with my mannerisms or my nature. I know I'm not everybody's cup of tea, but provided that the offense is found in the cross of Christ, if they get offended over Jesus, there's not really anything I can do about that. That's between them and God. But can I be faithful to deliver his message? Verses 12 and the first part of verse number 13 shows us that there were some who would receive, and they would find deliverance through the king's word. Faith in the king's word. Those who receive are delivered by faith in the king's word. Verse 12, he says, And when you come into a house, salute it. We salute today. Uh, our trailmen are learning how to do that properly to the flag and to uh, those that deserve respect. A salutation would be a greeting in this day. For instance, when I was over in Israel, many times I would meet someone and I would say, Shalom. I saluted them. In the Greek language, it would be the word Irene. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew Shalom. What I'm doing is I am offering up a wish, a hope, a prayer, if you will, for that person's well-being. And so when they come into a house, they're to say, I'm wishing you well-being. I'm saluting your house. These are men who are representatives of Jesus Christ himself. And they're coming with all the authority of heaven behind them. And they're coming to this house and they're wishing God's well-being on this residence, on this home, on this town, on this people. Not the objects, but the people that live there. That's pretty clear to understand that thing. It's not the brick and mortar of the house. It's the people of the house. And they come and they salute it. They wish that place well. This is part of their inquiry. In the salutation, are they received or are they rejected? Verse 12, when you come into a house, salute it. And if the house be, here's your word again, worthy, if it's worth you, uh, your presence there, if they're receptive of it is the idea, if they're open to you coming with the gospel of the kingdom, then let your peace come upon it. Let it remain there. And then the contrast. But if it be not worthy, if they don't receive your salutation, if they shun you at the door, if they cut you off right there, he says, let your peace return to you. That's passive. It's going to happen. Move on. He says, don't be broken over that. Don't stand there and pound their door down. Don't bulldoze them over with the news of the kingdom. Whosoever shall not receive you. I think it's interesting that he says more here about those that reject than those that receive. If they receive, hey, we welcome them in. It's all fine. It's all grand. It's glorious. And we get to see God move and we get to see him work in powerful, powerful ways. But he spends more time talking about those that shut the door, those that block that message, those that reject his messengers here. Because I think it breaks the Lord's heart in, in deep, deep ways. Those who reject, they find their doom in their unbelief. They are doomed to face the king's wrath. 
So do you see the contrast? Those who receive, they get deliverance by faith in the king's word. Here's his message. I believe Jesus is the one. I'm going to put my faith in him to save me. They get deliverance. Those that reject, they have a doom awaiting them. Remember, John 3 tells us that if we don't believe, we're condemned already. And that's a sad place to be. What do you have to do to go to hell? Absolutely nothing as a sinner. Just keep sinning, and you're going to find your, your way there just fine. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Those who reject, they have a doom over them. And by unbelief, they are going to face the king's wrath. As we continue reading, he says, Whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words. There's two aspects to that rejection. They're not receiving his messengers. They're ignoring, they're rejecting their words. So they're rejecting their person and their message. Two aspects of that. He says, when you depart out of that house or city. Question, where are they? To whom did Jesus send them? To the lost sheep of the house of... So they're not in Gentile areas. They're not in pagan lands. They're in their hometown. They're in an area of people that should be open to God, Jehovah, and, and open to the Bible. And what Jesus is saying here is so profound. He says, when you leave, don't even let the dust of that place contaminate you. Dust off your feet. What in the world does that mean? Why? What's, what's the picture behind that? Well, why? Why does their feet off? I think it goes back to the, the truth of Israel's rejection of their Savior. He's sending them with this message of the kingdom. They need to believe. And if they don't, what this message is sending them is that they're no better than the pagan unbelievers. They're no better than Gentile unbelievers who live their life without God. And these are the very people that are supposed to know God. And here, the, the idea of the, the shaking off of the dust is an idea of separation. Separation is the key word. Separated from God by unbelief. Separated from God in their sins. It helps us understand later when Jesus is going to stand before a group of people uh, called the Pharisees and he's going to say, you are going to die in your sins and whither I go, ye cannot come, period, ever. You will never come to where I'm going because you are going to die in your sins. How are they going to die in their sins? If they don't believe that he is the Messiah. John 8, go study that out. This is a tragic moment when his disciples have to leave somewhere and separate themselves from that people. It's like they're being written off. How can we say God would ever do that to somebody? God didn't write them off. They wrote themselves off because they rejected his outpouring, his invitation to say, repent. These are they that refuse to change their mind and they remain locked in their unbelief. And God makes a separation. This is a message that we need to understand. The rejection of the disciples, one writer put it this way, is more egregious 
than Sodom and Gomorrah's outrageously shameful treatment of God's angels. That's a profound statement. To understand the backdrop of verse 15 here, you need to go back and read Genesis 18 and 19 and understand what happened when Lot was in Sodom and the Lord and two angels went and communed with Abraham and then said, are we going to hide from Abraham what we're about to do? And they unfolded the plan before Abraham and basically informed him that we're going down as a testimony against the city because the smoke rises up. We're going down to remove any kind of excuse they would ever have that they didn't have a chance that, you know, we didn't investigate. So these angels are sent down. If you study that passage, you'll notice the Lord, the angel of the Lord, stops short of the cities and rests on the hillside there. And the two angels go down. And who is hospitable to them? Lot. Just Lot. Thank you, Pastor Larson, for that message. David. Who's the one that received them? Lot did. And as they go in, you read the account that unfolded. Here's two people that are coming into a town, and they're about to get egregiously, according to this writer, egregiously taken advantage of. And don't tell me that's not the bent of the lust of the heart of the wickedness that thrives inside someone who's given to this kind of lifestyle. They are bent after their own lusts. And they're rejecting the truth of God. I don't want to be unkind. I'm just, I'm just laying that out there. I'm not saying I don't love them as a person, but I cannot condone egregious acts of unkindness like this towards other people. Neither can God. And now get this, okay? Get this. He says, it's going to be more tolerable in the judgment for what they did than for how you're treating my messengers. My heart breaks today for our country in so many ways because there are so many areas that we have seen such a drastic change. It used to be you could go into a town and the city council and the boards and the things that were there would be receptive of anybody coming that named the name of Christ or was trying to do a work uh, for Christ in that area. Today, I mean, you heard testimony just a few weeks ago from, from a dear brother who's headed right over here to this valley, and he's concerned. I don't know about you, but I picked up on it. He's concerned about the city council that's there, about the things they're going to run in. Are they going to receive a welcome? Is it going to be a place that's considered worthy of them being there? Now, again, we can't limit the scope to what is happening here because God has other plans and other purposes. Sometimes he sends a person to an area to be a witness against it, and that, that could be. But I pray not for that. The rejection of the disciples is more egregious than Sodom and Gomorrah's outrageously shameful treatment of God's angels. He sends his messengers. Do we receive them or do we reject them? Responding to the love of God is so crucial so crucial. God is the Holy One. He's the judge of all. And He summons people to trust in Him. He summons people to do His will. He's the King. And He shows mercy to sinners. Thank God for His mercy. If we'll seek Him. He came to seek and save that which was lost. And He rewards those that seek Him. The love of God cannot be understood apart from the holiness and the judgment of God. Thank you to this writer. Trees that fail to bear good fruit will be cut down, cast into the fire. Those who do not have faith 
will be cast out into outer darkness. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm just quoting the scriptures. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's going to be the lot of those that are found without a wedding garment in the day of the great feast, according to that parable. And the truth of the matter is, those that reject God's message of hope and salvation await their doom in the lake of fire and in a place called hell. The rich who fail to care for the poor and do not repent because of their failure, they're going to suffer forever. Luke chapter 16 shows us a story that revolves around that idea. But faith is the hinge upon which it all turns. God's mercy. I'll close with this. You've been kind to listen to me this long. I'll wind this down. It's one of the great basic facts of life and that time and time again, an opportunity comes to us. So let's keep our heads screwed on straight here. What is the opportunity that is being presented to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Can you understand that part of it? Yeah, they are getting an invitation to receive the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. What will they do with that opportunity? The story I'm going to share with you here reminds us that opportunities are fleeting. To those people in Palestine, opportunity comes here in this passage, and sometimes it doesn't come back after it's gone. To those people in Palestine, there was coming the opportunity to receive the gospel. But if they did not take it, the opportunity might well never return. As the proverb has it, Three things come not back, the spoken word, the spent arrow, and the lost opportunity, and we might put emails on there, I don't know, four things. This happens in every sphere of life. In his autobiography, I'm not going to pronounce this name correctly, Chiaroscuro, Chiaroscuro, he was a painter. The painter Augustus John tells of an incident and adds an iconic comment, laconic comment, I should say. He was in Barcelona, and it was time to leave for Marseille. I had spent, I had sent forward my baggage and was walking to the station when I encountered three gitanas engaged in buying flowers at a booth. These were Jesus. And um, they were buying flowers at a booth. He says, I was so struck by their beauty and flashing elegance that I almost missed my train. Even when I reached Marseille and met my friend, the vision still haunted me. I positively had to return, but I did not find these gypsies again. One never does. The artist was always looking for glimpses of beauty to transfer to his canvas, but he knew well that if he did not paint the beauty when he found it, all the chances were that he would never catch that glimpse again. The tragedy of life is so often the tragedy of lost opportunity. And as Jesus woefully closes his words in verse 14 and 15, he says, whoever shall not receive you nor hear your words when you part out of that house or that city, shake off the dust of your feet. In other words, it's unclean, it's unworthy, it's unfit. They've rejected the gospel. The doom awaits them. Verse 15, he says, Verily, truly, amen, truly, I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment 
than for that city. A day of lost opportunities for those that reject. But time is still available for all us here who can reach out. We never know when that opportunity will flee and fly away from us. And so through this week, let me encourage you, be redeeming the time and trust God that he's going to provide for you as you go and share his word. You will not have a lack.